This is the Taiwanology podcast from Commonwealth Magazine, where we discuss Taiwan matters and why they matter to you. Coming to you from Taipei, the capital of the freest nation in Asia. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Taiwanology podcast. This is your host, Guang Yingliu from Taiwan's Commonwealth Magazine. Today, I'm very excited because we have an excellent guest to talk about Taiwan's election that is coming up in about two weeks' time. So it's really around the corner. Well, so they say that 2024 is going to be a historic election year with elections in 50 countries and over 2 billion voters are expected to cast their ballots. This election is definitely crucial for Taiwan as we choose the leader for the upcoming four years. For the region, this election is also closely observed. Our loyal listeners might recall an earlier episode I recorded with Karis Templeman from Stanford University a few months ago, where we talked about how the two-party structure has been pretty strong in Taiwan. Taiwan's future has always been intertwined with regional dynamics, with the tension between the U.S. and China growing, which is why the decisions made in elections could echo far beyond the island's shores. But it's not just geopolitics at play. Who are the swing voters and how big is this group really? What issues do they really care about? Another interesting topic that um, has been making the rounds is young voters. I just realized to my surprise that the, the voters aged between 20 and 39, they make up 6 million of Taiwan's eligible voters. That's close to one third. So that's, I would say, not a small group. The future of Taiwan may well rest in their hands. How are they shaping the narrative? We are very lucky to have an excellent guest with us, Mr. Song Wendy. Hi, Wendy. Hi, Guangying. It's very nice to have you in our studio today on this coldest day of winter. So Wendy is a non-resident fellow with the Atlantic Council's Global China Hub. He is also a lecturer in the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific and a member of the Australian Center on China in the World. His research focuses on the China-U.S.-Taiwan trilateral relations with particular interests in Taiwanese politics. So who better to talk about the upcoming election than you? That's very kind. Thank you, Guangying, for that introduction. Okay, my favorite question to ask every guest that has ever been in this studio was, how did you get into the business you're doing? And how did you get to be a lecturer in Australia? Well, I mean, I'm a 90s kid and growing in Taiwan back in the 90s, that was an exciting time for Taiwan's democratization process domestically. But also more geopolitically, that was also a moment of heightened tension. Mm -hmm. Taiwan had their first direct presidential election in 1996. Mm -hmm. And basically in the year leading up to it, there were rounds after rounds of Chinese intimidation campaign coming out of Beijing. That would include rhetorical censure, condemnation, of course, but also as we get closer to election day, 
a lot of show of force in the form of China's uh, military drills near Taiwan and uh, firing some ballistic missiles even in the uh, waters outside right. Taiwan. I remember around that time, I, w- I was little, but when I watched the TV, there would be so many headlines about all the hundreds of missiles directed at Taiwan. Yeah, I mean, those were big topics back then. And certainly that was especially a big topic in the 2004 election, I have to say. That's a year when Taiwan had their first ever referendum. Mm -hmm. So that's another long story. But yeah, in the 90s, for sure, even that year, there there was quite a wave of immigration of Taiwan. But why did you choose to study politics, political science? So, I mean, growing up, I think just seeing all this conversation about cross-strait tension between China and Taiwan and about how there was Taiwan's international situation was increasingly fragile or at least delicate, let's say. Naturally, you want to learn something about it. Naturally, you get a more spirit of public service. You want to see how can I be involved? How can I learn more about this and where I can make some contribution towards it? So naturally, political science, I think, is a direction that... uh, it's something that drew me in, essentially. Right, yeah. So as a political scientist in Australia, what was a typical question you get from Aussies when they know that you study geopolitics? Well, interesting. When they ask me about Taiwan, I think they want to know about, well, what's Taiwan's origin story, basically? And in much more contemporary in the last few years, there'd be a lot more conversations about uh, Taiwan's security situation and whether if a conflict does break out over Taiwan Strait, to what extent will Australia be drawn into that potential conflict? Right. Because Australia is our neighbor. That's, that's definitely a natural concern. But also Australia is a treaty ally to the United States, right. which to many in Taiwan certainly is seen as U.S. seen as one of the primary security partners of Taiwan. So for Australians, they're always thinking about, well, if something happened to Taiwan, U.S. may be involved. And if U.S. gets involved, then Australia would have to be involved. Right, yeah. And so that leads to a lot of conversation within Australia about how to manage security relations uh, with U.S. In addition to, of course, as always, balancing economic relations with China. Right, I see. So we also see that play out. So very interesting time indeed. And more about uh, Chinese intimidation later. But first of all, for our listeners who are maybe or maybe not following the Taiwanese elections, we should talk about our candidates. So we have three candidates, right? Uh, first, maybe we could start with the incumbent DPP's candidate, Lai Qingde, and his running mate, Xiaomi Kim. Who are they? So Lai Qingde, who is the presidential candidate, is the current vice president. And he's got probably one of the most complete resume among the candidates. He used to be a premier, and before that, he was mayor of a major southern city, which is a ruling party DPP stronghold. Before that, he was legislator in both the upper chamber and lower chamber of Taiwan's legislature mm-hmm. as well. And so for him, I think his argument is that I have the most complete resume, therefore I'm the most ready to go. And one thing he doesn't have, however, is relatively little direct foreign policy experience. Mm-hmm. And we know that this is a time when foreign policy expertise is at a premium for Taiwan's politics. And that is why he chose as his running mate, Xiaobi Kim, who until a few weeks ago had been Taiwan's representative or de facto ambassador to the U.S. 
who has been managing Taiwan's relations with the U.S. And so that's how he makes up for that gap in his resume. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the famous cat warrior. So this is the incumbent duel of DPP. And how about the, his challenger, Hou Youyi, and his running mate, Zhao Shaokang? So Hou Yi is the current mayor of New Taipei City, which is the single largest city in Taiwan. Before that, he was a career police for, I think, almost 30 years, give or take. Wow. So for him, I think his branding is that I'm this old policy, no politics guy. I'm going to be your night watchman. I'm the one. Law right? and order. Kind of, yeah. Like, I'm going to be your uh, quiet paternal protector who will protect you from threats, domestic and external, basically. Right. That's his brand. And that may, to some voter, provide a certain degree of security and assurance. That may also mean, however, that in terms of political rhetoric, he can to be on the more low-key side. Mm-hmm. Which is why when it comes to choosing a running mate, he chose to nominate Zhao Shaokang, who has been basically Taiwan's opposition side's single most, or at least one of the most powerful media pundits. Huh for the opposition-friendly side of Taiwan's media for about the last quarter century. Right. So that's how they combine their strengths together to form a strong team as well. Yeah, and he's very eloquent and also a pretty senior politician, I I would say, was in the Environmental Protection Agency, so a pretty long political career. And now I think the arguably the most important candidate, Ke Wenzhe, and he's also very interesting running mate, Cynthia Wu. Yeah, so I mean, Cohen had been mayor of Taipei for about eight years until relatively recently. And he's got a brand, a political brand that's much more anti-establishment mm-hmm. in orientation. So I think if the two other candidates, the other two camps were historically defined more by their stance on China policy, then for Koenja, he called himself the third force. So mm-hmm. he's all about breaking out of the existing mode, how it's going to, where the other two parties talk about China policy, he's going to be the, the embodiment of domestic policy level concerns and grievances. He's going to bring about new possibilities for the two-party system that has dominated Taiwan politics for over 20 years mm-hmm. by this point. Right. So when I talked to supporters of Ke Wenzhe, they all told me that they wanted an, an option other than the blue and green. So that's the, the old structure. Yeah. So I think it represents something fresh. I think so, yeah. I mean, for what used to be a two-party system, for the longest time, KNT was the establishment option because mm-hmm. it's been around for over 100 years. Right. DPP, the ruling party, used to be the younger people, the more upstart party. It's only been around since the 1980s. But this time around, it's harder for the ruling party DPP to still play that champion of the younger, more populist, anti-establishment energy because DPP has been the ruling party and therefore has been the establishment for almost eight years by this point. Mm -hmm. And that's why those younger voters need a new home. And that's where this new third party candidate, Coenger, comes in. That's that's very interesting. That's also something I observed that DPP has become for the youngest voters, the incumbent party. Right. So these three candidates seem different. They represent different parties, but 
What really tells them apart is my question. I think they represent different branding when it comes to their primary appeal to voters. For ruling parties, Lai Qingde, he's been VP, of course, so he's all about selling this notion of continuity. In policy, he's told people that、um, he's going to be essentially Taiwan 2.0、right. on policy toward U.S. and China.、Mm-hmm. Domestic policy-wise, of course, he's also being a champion of the ruling party. He's also being put forward policy that's a lot more, let's say, supplementary in nature rather than transformational when it、right. comes to domestic policy structures. So he's the continuity guy. For opposition KMT, especially with this new running mate, I think KMT's argument now is focusing on China policy change. You hear KMT talking about how this election for them, the primary framing is a choice between war or peace. The argument, of course, is that where DPP says continuity, KMT says boiling frog. Mm-hmm. That is to say that for KMT, if you stick with DPP again, that may mean ever heightening geopolitical tension, perhaps even outright conflict. And therefore, if you want change in terms of Taiwan relationship with China, then you should vote for KMT、mm, because so, we are going to be friendlier to China. Yes, indeed. So KMT has a more Beijing friendlier pitch overall, if you will, and that's gets into more detail in terms of whether they accept、uh, Beijing's. Prefer pre prefer precondition for cross strait political talks, but we may be able to get into that a bit later. Okay. The third candidate, Kowenjo, his branding is about this disruption. That's one way to to look into. I think for sure, I mean, disruption such a nice buzzword as well for this Silicon Valley tech era. So you know,、well. I was just thinking maybe in some sense, Kowenjo was a little bit like Trump, right? Okay, I mean, people have been calling him Taiwan's Trump, and for Kowenjo as well, he's relative political newcomer. He's only entered politics around 2014, so his his branding is that I am a political outsider. Therefore, I'm going to talk in a way that's different from establishment politicians.、Mm-hmm. I may be straight talking. I may be coming across as politically not correct sometimes, but rather than a bug, that's actually part of my charm. Yeah, and I'm going to drain the swamp. Sounds familiar. That that's true as well. That's part of the argument. So he's he's almost like the plague on both of your houses candidate in a sense that he's going to bring down the current two party system and bring in, if not meaningful positive change, and certainly interesting disruption. Right. So okay, it seems that we definitely have a very interesting two weeks ahead of us as we face the、uh, the campaigns. So we're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the young voters, the swing voters, and the Chinese interference that everybody is talking about. Welcome back to the Taiwanology podcast. This is the second part of the podcast about Taiwan election. We have Wendy Song from Australian National University with us today. We were just talking about the three candidates who are competing in the presidential election. Have you been following the opinion polls, Winty? Of course. So, what's interesting was last month I read an article you published with the Atlantic Council, and your conclusion then was the answer isn't quite clear yet. How about now? 
Well, so I'm going to start with what, what scholarly nerds always say. That is, there are always still variables still at play. So mm-hmm. we never really know until we get election day. So that's my disclaimer. But having said that, essentially, as we get closer to the polling day, essentially, we, when we get closer to the election day, the polling trend begin to tell a more clear and consistent story. And that story are basically twofold. Mm-hmm. A, they are more change votes than continuity votes. If oh. we think of the election as a continuity versus change right. binary. So that means there are more opposition votes combined than ruling parties' votes. However, uh, since this is a three-way race right. and we have one ruling party monopolizing the continuity votes and two opposition options splitting the change votes, the ruling party DPP has been having and continues to have to this day a small but consistent lead over the other two opposition options. About what's the percentage? So roughly 35% plus for ruling party, then about 30 for the main opposition option, KMT, then about just under 20 for the third party TPP. Okay, so he has had a 5% lead consistently. Uh, roughly, yes. Mm-hmm. And it's a general trend I've been seeing across the polls and and we've been seeing it for about the last six months or so as well. So I think that trend is consistent by this point. One thing that's changed more meaningfully over the last two months is who exactly is in second place. Mm-hmm. And KMT and the third party TPP have been exchanging leads for a long time. But ever since late November or so, you see KMT emerging to become a much more consistent second place candidate. So I think for the rest of the race, what we're looking at then is whether the third party TPP can continue to be seen as viable, judging from its standing in the polls. That is whether the second place and third place can continue to stick within a narrow gap to be within striking distance. Because if not, if third place possibility TPP continue to hover in the 15 to 20% range, there's always a risk that come election day, some of the third parties voters may decide to switch their support mm. to one of the other two perceived to be more viable options. Right. How likely is that? So long story short, KMT had their own internal party primary process for the presidency nomination from about roughly March to July. And then from July to late November, they have four months that KMT could have spent on trying to marginalize the third party. But instead, KMT spent those four months largely on playing nice with the third party Mm -hmm. in the hope of attracting or luring the third party into forming a unity ticket with the KMT. Mm -hmm. Because if that happens, then as I said earlier, there are more change votes than continuity votes. So a unity opposition ticket would have a great chance. So KMT tried to play nice with the third party. And in the process, I think the third party got to have a lot more airtime mm-hmm. in terms of being a champion against the DPP, against the ruling party. Yep. So that actually ended up keeping the third party's poll numbers and visibility at a relatively higher level. And now that the opposition unit talk has finally collapsed since late November, 
came the switching strategy and he's trying to attack the third party a lot more. And however, they only had six weeks from the end of opposition unity talks to election day. So it's rushed. It's very rushed timetable. They, time is not exactly on KMT's side. Right. If the plan is to marginalize third party in order to monopolize all yeah. the change votes. How is the turnout going to be for this election? What's your prediction? The turnout is going to be probably likely to be the I'd say medium range, maybe mid-60s to very low 70s. Mm-hmm. People are not excited? Well, people are and they aren't. Um, there, I think there are two factors at play here and they kind of cancel each other out. So this year, the one new thing is that you had three candidates rather than the usual two. So with more candidates, usually you have more wider range of policy platforms on offer, and therefore candidates are meant to be able to capture a higher share of the electorate and getting more voters excited and therefore higher turnout. Right. That's the usual norm, judging from past experience. However, this election is a bit different in that so much of the campaigning has focused on palace intrigues mm. about the two opposition camps. Will they or won't they form a unity ticket? So that means so much conversation. It's about high-level politics between high-level politicians, and there a lot less airtime got devoted to policy nuances and conversation as a result. Right. So that may mean less voter sense of participation or less sense of feeling that the political parties are truly paying as much attention to their concern as they would like right. to see. And I think. And that's a shame because I really think that for election uh, in a true democracy, people should participate more in debates and policy discussions. I think so for sure. Yeah, and again, it's it's a great almost missed opportunity because in the past, when you had two viable candidates like you usually have with past presidential elections, it's so easy for those campaign to turn into de facto referendum on China policy alone. Mm-hmm. When position on Taiwan relationship with China became almost the B-O-N-N-O of yeah. elections. Yeah. This year, with three viable candidates, it's harder to frame it as such uh, China policy binaries, right. which usually will open up more room for meaningful policy debates. However, unfortunately, I think this time around, maybe that hasn't exactly happened to the level we like mm-hmm. to see. Right. So since you are the the China expert, what the election outcome could mean for Taiwan's delicate dance between the U.S. and and China. So could you decipher that for us? Right. Uh, So the three main candidates have their own different position on Taiwan relationship with China and by extension where Taiwan should sit on the U.S. versus China spectrum, if you will. Yeah, which side? Yeah, and this is going to be grossly oversimplifying them, but DPP, the ruling party, is usually seen as a relatively assertive on China party. And the opposition KMT is usually seen as Beijing friendlier, whereas the third party TPP with Coenger is increasingly also on the Beijing friendlier side of a spectrum. However, they do have different rhetoric, if you will. And one litmus test that uh, Beijing often refers to 
is this idea of the 1992 consensus. It's this formulation that both sides of Taiwan Strait, Beijing and Taipei, belong to a very loose, almost strategically ambiguous uh, notion of one China. And Beijing needs Taiwan to agree with that precondition before formal political talks can happen between the two sides. Now, how do Taiwanese political campaigns react? Ruling party campaign, DPP, basically says no. They are not able to endorse that formulation of 92 consensus. KMT's candidate Ho Yi essentially says yes. KMT is willing to accept 92 consensus, although with a few, you know, addendum here and there, of course. And the third party, Coenger, is... Also strategically ambiguous on this, like Coenger will, will criticize the ruling party DPP. DPP doesn't recognize 192 consensus, and Coenger has been saying DPP is foolish for not endorsing it. Like, why annoy Beijing for no good reason? Mm-hmm. And then reporters will be asking Coenger, then would you endorse the 92 consensus? To that, Coenger's answer is basically, well, this is a product that Beijing is trying to sell us. So you should go ask Beijing what exactly are the content of this product. When you get that answer from Beijing, then you come back to me and ask me whether I'll buy that product or not. Okay. So one could argue strategic ambiguity, but basically when you try to survive as a third party in Taiwan's historical two-party system, oftentimes the strategy, the path of least resistance is to find that space for constructive ambiguity so that you are able to attract those voters who are disaffected with the two historical options on offer while keeping your own policy platform ambiguous enough that nobody will find your platform too directly offensive or mm. off-putting to them. Right. So in a sense, right. there is sound electoral logic to this posture as well. Yeah, so I think Ke Wenzhou is trying to appeal to the swing voters who are maybe in the middle. That brings us to the swing voters because people have been talking about the swing voters. They seem to think they are important. How decisive really is the swing voters? How important are they? I mean, swing voters definitely are forced to be reckoned with in Taiwan politics for sure. And this time around, like I said before, given that you have a three-way race rather than two-way race, this election cannot be a simple de facto referendum on China policy. So that opens up more room for campaigns to win over swing voters on domestic policy fronts. Something that, again, I wish they would be even more proactive at, but we are seeing signs of them trying harder as we get closer to election day. So what kind of domestic issues are going to matter to swing voters? Some of these issues would be how they are able to address challenges in providing upward social economic mobility, especially for the younger generation of Taiwanese voters who are facing crushing housing prices, for example, who may be younger couples who are trying to make sure their children can get ahead, but it's difficult at a time when education costs are so high. So that's why you see campaigns in recent week begin to announce policy after policy. Essentially, they are trying to talk about how they'll provide more subsidies for education, tuition waiver for high schools, for example, or a bit more 
funding for private university students, for example. All these are attempts to show that they care about the existing have-nots and are willing to help provide a ladder for upward advancement for this segment of the society. I think if I were to provide one more factor, it would be about how the main party talk about their posture on how they plan to stabilize Taiwan's economy at the time of increasing geopolitical uncertainty around the world. Yeah, it's a huge issue. And on that, yes, indeed. And on that, I think different parties at different platforms. I think for KMT, the opposition party, their argument is a lot more about getting China right. Mm -hmm. That when they are in power, KMT will try to find ways to get along with Beijing better, e.g., e.g. by endorsing 92 consensus, and through that, they're going to reactivate a number of trade agreements that Taiwan's last KMT government signed mm-hmm. with Beijing going back to the, to the early 2010s, for example, cross-strait services trade agreement. Mm-hmm. And which didn't pass. Which had challenges in Taiwan's legislative process, for sure. Beijing always has a, they call it 两手策略, two-handed policy, or I guess much more colloquially English, it's carrots and sticks approach to mm-hmm. it. Sticks are much more straightforward to understand. That will include display of China's muscles, including military drills, including POA, People Liberation Army military jets flying near Taiwan, for example, to show how one more unfavorable move coming out of Taipei, something may happen that would take the security situation beyond the point of no return, for example. There's also the the carrots where Beijing will promise to provide economic incentives to those Taiwanese political actors and economic actors who endorse principles or make statements in ways to Beijing's liking. So I think Jing's suspension of some of the preferential tariff export items from Taiwan to Beijing is one way of driving home this point that not these economic quote-unquote opportunity from Beijing can be taken for granted for yeah, Taiwan. Yeah, the goodwill will, will last. Indeed, and I think that may also be Beijing's way of saying maybe Taiwanese voters, this is a good time for you to make the kind of electoral decision that will create the opportunity to replenish that goodwill, right. reservoir of goodwill. Yeah, so because that the ECFA preferential treatment was definitely carrot that has been there for over a decade, and now they're taking those carrots away. So, which brings us to a very interesting question is about Chinese interference. We have been reading about it, hearing about it, what are your thoughts on Chinese interference? When we talk about it, what are we talking about? Indeed, before I get to this, I might try to expand a little bit on your last point as well in terms of ECFA, because there are different narratives within Taiwan about how they frame economic relationship coming out of ECFA and other trade agreement between China and Taiwan. So I understand the opposition definitely frames ECFA and preferential trade tariff treatments as carrots. Whereas if you are ruling party DPP, they have a very different narrative. <laughs> they are Which all, is? They are going to be like, you know, this is the kind of quote-unquote assistant that will cultivate dependency over time and at some point increase in cross-strait economic, asymmetric economic interdependency will lead to reduction of Taiwan political economy, blah, blah, blah. 
That used to be their argument back in the 2010s. They may have lost a little bit of shine uh, in recent years. However, I think in the last year or two, DPP, the ruling party, found a new argument in their favor. And the argument is basically that, hey, all these other leading Western economies that Taiwan does businesses with, especially the higher-end value-added kind of businesses, they are economically and technologically trying to de-risk from the Chinese economy mm. at this moment. Right. So in that sense, maybe Taiwan would be wise to follow suit as well. And so even if Taiwan continues trading relationship with Beijing, maybe the degree of benefit to be derived from that relationship would be facing diminishing marginal returns in recent years, mm-hmm. especially in the era of competition between U.S. and China. So that's their pitch. Um, in other words, Taiwan should also diversify, which makes a lot of sense, too. Uh, diversification and all that talk about supply chain resiliency on the other end of the host of the whole business relationship. I think these are the buzzwords for sure in conversations in recent years. Yeah, that's true. And uh, we have done a few cover stories on the supply chain change and diversification as well. Right. So maybe we should, could we also talk about the young voters? How how important are the young voters really? Or are we exaggerating? I mean, young voters has been a important factor in Taiwan's presidential elections. Young voters, however, are interesting in that Taiwan's young voters sometimes behave differently from younger voters in established Western democracies. The stereotyping democracy from, uh, let's say, U.S. and some other European democracy, mm-hmm. the generally stereotype is that younger voters, first-time voters, tend to vote at lower rates. They may be both less interested in politics, perhaps, or they may be less entangled with other social organizations, all these networks that could be used to mobilize, to rock the votes, to go to vote. So younger voters tend to vote at lower rates than usual. And in Taiwan, that sometimes is the case. But there were a few elections in Taiwan when young voters generally are seen to vote at super high rates. These are the 2004 elections, 2014, 2016, possibly 2020. Usually the general pattern is that whenever they are heightened perception of external security risks, younger voters in Taiwan tend to show up at higher rates than usual. Right. That's probably why this year we are not seeing as much of uh, very direct, super high-profile military maneuver out of Beijing in the closing months of the election precisely for not energizing the youth votes. Oh, because they they knew that tactic would backfire. That hasn't worked all that well for them in the past. And this goes back to how Beijing's option towards Taiwan electorally sometimes may be more limited than is believed. In a sense that obviously the most straightforward tool at the disposal is to use the heightened perception of military tension, e.g. for the form of missile testing or more military drills closer to Taiwan, as a way to dissuade Beijing hawkish voters from voting for the ruling party, let's say, and to persuade them that Mm -hmm. maybe you want to vote for the other options. Mm -hmm. 
But the thing is, Taiwanese voters have been living in this state of existential external threat for over a quarter century by this point. So the utility, the credibility of that external security threat playbook from Beijing hasn't been doing all that well in recent years. Mm. So if Beijing tried to maneuver this and try to use heightened military tension close to the election, Taiwanese voters may actually end up calling them bluff. Mm. And they may actually end up voting for precisely more Taiwanese nationalist or more Beijing hawkish candidacies rather than Beijing doffish candidacies that Beijing like to see. Right. So it's almost like the 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 fable of the the wind and the sun. If you blow harder, you know the the guy would just grab onto his coat even even more. So we'll come to the the last question of today. What kind of implications would each result mean for Taiwan and the region? So I think one way to tackle this question is to think about what that will, what kind of impact that will have for Taiwan relationship with the two leading superpowers. Around which regional order tend to tend to revolve around. So, if the ruling party DPP gets reelected into a third term, that's going to be likely continuity on foreign policy fronts, especially in terms of Taiwan's posture towards the U.S. Indeed, the ruling party DPP has been trying to drive on this point time and time again by nominating Taiwan's ambassador to the U.S. for the last few years. Shall be king to be the VP, vice presidential candidate. So that will mean a DPP presidency will mean continued strategic alignment of Taiwan with the U.S. That will also mean that after three continuous turns, that may just create enough path dependency in terms of close knit Taiwan-U.S. relationship, including a security front, that will anchor all subsequent Taiwanese administrations to come in the future as well. Economically, it will mean economic de-risking from China, for sure. And and as to the other options, KMT, the main opposition party, it will mean a closer relationship between、uh, Taiwan and China, for、mm-hmm. sure. That will also mean reopening and reacceleration of economic tie between the two sides. Indeed, Hou Yi, the KMT candidate, has said that if he's in power as president. He will try to find ways to again attract more Chinese students to study in Taiwan again, and find ways for Chinese workers to seek a work opportunity in Taiwan as well. All as a way to use more direct, impersonal interaction as a way to cultivate that cross-strait reservoir of goodwill from、mm. the bottom up, basically.、Mm-hmm. Now, if the third party Kowenjo gets、mm-hmm. elected as president. Then we will be in very new territory for sure, to、right. say the very least.、Mm-hmm. That will domestically mean breaking down of the two-party political system that has governed Taiwan for over twenty years. That may mean that Beijing will be a bit more willing to cut Kowenjo a bit more slack because Kowenjo is relatively blank slate on China policy front. Whether that will translate into Kowenjo getting more benefit of the doubt from not only Beijing but also the U.S. and therefore giving him perhaps the greater room for to maneuver on U.S.-China policy than all the other two options、uh, remains to be seen. 
But if I were Coenger, that's definitely the sales pitch I'm going to be putting forward. Right. So this wraps up today's episode. If you enjoyed our discussion, please take a moment to leave a review or shoot us an email. For more in-depth reports about Taiwan's elections and interviews of the candidates, check out Commonwealth's English website. Our next episode will be available January 9th. Special thanks for our producer Wei Ru Wang and our editor Ian Huang. I'm your host Guang Ying Liu. Follow Taiwanology on your favorite podcast platform. And until then, take care. Thank you, Wendy. Thank you, Guang.